0: Well, welcome to the latest episode of Star Cells and God. This is the podcast where we explore the discoveries happening at the frontier of science and how those discoveries provide evidence for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist. I'm joined in studio by Dr. Jeff Zwerink, who is an astrophysicist. And a Christian apologist as well, and we both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which is the organization that is sponsoring this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website www.reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media rtb underscore official, and then last but definitely not least, uh, go to our YouTube channel Reasons to Believe One and subscribe. And then also hit the notification button so that you will be notified when the latest episode of Star Cells, and God drops. So anyway, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's program. Uh, Jeff, you've got an interesting uh, discovery, I guess you would call it, uh, that that deals with really a a sociological issue impacting science.
1: It really is. And, uh, you know, I love... science i've been uh, one of my earliest memories growing up was watching my dad do a science demonstration for my older brother a group that he was involved with and i've just been fascinated with the way things work how do we understand what's going on in the world and have spent a lot of time doing science in the meantime i mean that's 50 years since that first uh, encounter with uh, what it means to be a scientist and have just thought a lot about how the world works. How do I help other people appreciate this fascinating mm-hmm. world that we live? And, uh, you know, especially since I've been here, just thinking about what is it that makes science work? And there's a lot of worldview philosophy issues that come into the, into play there, uh, even though we tend to discuss this in terms of, you know, naturalism and create cre- you know, uh, creationism there's a lot of how the process of science works has actually got a lot of philosophical mm-hmm. preconditions. And so I ran across an article as I was uh, just perusing the scientific literature that struck me as odd. And I you know kind of began to read and I realized this is a way of looking at science that is very different from the way i had been trained to look at science, and I, I think it's actually a detrimental way to look at it. But I thought, okay, let's let's have a discussion about it. And so the article uh, you can bring it up there is uh, the the title is called "Observing Whiteness in Introductory Physics: A Case Study." Uh, it's in the Physical Rev, uh, Phys Review Physics Education Research mm-hmm. edition. So this isn't you know kind of some backwater journal. This is where people go look and say, how do we mm-hmm. teach? What do we learn here? And what struck me about it is. You know, I I am not by any means going to claim that throughout its history, science has had this impartial, everybody can come play to the game. I mean, there's been discrimination. I've seen it Mm -hmm. against people of all different races. I've seen it against people, you know, men and women. I've seen it. In, in ba- basically, every instance you can see it. I've seen people treat other people like jerks. So I'm not going to claim any of that. Well, and because happen.
0: science as an institution is carried out by human beings who huh. are deeply flawed. So, <laughs> exactly, yes. so to say that there's those types of that discriminatory practices isn't revelatory in any in any way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I mean, so I, I'm not really. You know, Don't don't get anything I'm saying is like, oh, there hasn't been discrimination. Yes, there has. The question is what's the evidence for it how do we deal with it and what's the right way to look at it and and this Mm -hmm. is where science has a uh, a way of operating and it says you know okay science says bring your ideas to the table let's look at the evidence build a model find the best explanation and move forward with what we know is the best explanation or what the evidence says and so uh, i thought you know in terms of looking at this there are there are definitions and you know you talk about whiteness and my first thought was okay so what is whiteness is that just because i'm white i've got whiteness and so uh if you go to the next uh, slide there they have a definition of whiteness which is uh for the purpose of their analysis they define whiteness in the following way within whiteness organization of social life is in terms of a center and margins that are based on dominance, control, and a transcendent figure that is consistently and structurally ascribed value over and above other figures. And they contrast that with an organization of social life around plurality, mutuality, and community care. And I thought that was just kind of an interesting definition because I'm not sure... in that instance, I mean, it seems like education is inherently white, if you will, under this definition, because yeah. there's a teacher who, by definition, knows more. Right. At least my maybe this is right. my white way of looking or the whiteness way of looking at it is the teacher knows more and is guiding me and helping me learn, drawing me into what the teacher knows so that I can be better educated, better equipped, right. better able to handle the data that's out there. And it seems like just right off the bat... Uh, there's this is a very different way of looking at how to approach education in general but specifically how to approach education in physics because it's defined now in terms of the teacher would be the dominant central transcendent figure and the students would be the oppressed lesser yeah unvalued And, and it seems like that's gonna that's that's a problematic way of look but so so the now that we have their definition of whiteness, we can look at, okay, so what is it that they're arguing here and how does it play out? And um, in the introduction of the paper, I don't have it on there, but I, I will read. It says, um, you know, what they noticed noted is that you look at the population in general um, of the population age 20 to 24, about 72% of the U.S. population is white, 16% of the U.S. population in that age group is black, um, but what they notice is that for the bachelors in sciences that are granted and the bachelors in, or the phds that are awarded and it may not be specific to physics i think it is um, that 72 and 75 percent of those are awarded to white people so 70 73 percent of the u.s population in that age great 20 to 24 is white the percentages of the Bachelors and doctorates are 72 and 75, respectively. For black people, though, it's 16% of the population, but only 3% of the bachelor's degrees and mm-hmm. 1.8% of the doctorate degrees. So there's this big discrepancy in terms of the population mm-hmm. and the degrees awarded, mm-hmm. whereas for whites, it pretty much lines up.
0: So, And I think we would both say that's a bit concerning, right? That, oh, yeah. yeah that, there's
1: something going on there.
0: Right, that, that we would like to see, you know... <laughs> That the the, the population uh, – the general population reflects the types of degrees that are being awarded in mm-hmm. the
1: sciences. Well, and, and if I could point out, the reason why we think it's concerning is you, know, you could make a naive argument that, okay, well, that means whites are smarter than blacks because mm-hmm. whites have more degrees than blacks. But no, the, the reason why it's concerning is like, okay – there's this equivalent capacity to do things what's cause, what's right. what's caused this difference because right. that stands out as pretty stark uh, you know right. it'd be one thing if it were like you know a few percentage points less but that's that's a that's a large fraction less and so right. so what's the cause of that and, you know again science has this approach bring your explanation to the table let's test it and look at it so here is to the best i can understand when in fact what they say is that they would argue under critical race theory that this is um, evidence of what the, what they call a uh, that racism and white supremacy are endemic to all aspects of U.S. society. So that's the critical race theory na- you know, The way the way they say it is critical race theory names that racism and white supremacy is endemic to all aspects of U.S. society. So that. Uh, I didn't take that to mean that's their starting premise is that this pervades everything and that Mm -hmm. this is the explanation for all these uh, discrepancies or Mm -hmm. divergences that we see. And so they point to that there. And and in fact, they they go on to say that they would cite this as evidence that white supremacy or the, quote, systemic maintenance of the dominant position that produces white privilege is shaping degree granting. So that's kind of the premise of their article. Mm -hmm. And then they go on to look, you know, talk a lot about various things, but then they look, analyze a specific instance of a classroom setting where they're asked, the students are asked to draw an energy uh, exchange diagram or energy interaction diagram. And, uh, you know, one person goes up, starts drawing on the board, other people sit, you know, so they analyze the dynamics in there. And their contention is that there was a guy who stood up at the board, grabbed the marker. He now assumes the dominant central position. Everybody else is marginalized. Uh, You know, that the the diagram now, because he stood up to do it first, he's now the one getting – the value. You know, so they, they analyze this situation. But that's which, <laughs> very different than the classroom experiences I had. I remember taking
0: a, the second year of organic chemistry and the, the professor would call people up to the board mm-hmm. and, say, and write out this structure, You know, heaven help you if you couldn't. And then How does it, what's the chemical reaction, you know, with this compound? What's the end product? And Mm -hmm. nobody wanted to be in that position (laughs) because it meant in front of the
1: class, you're going to get ripped. (laughs) Well, and it's a, so this is kind of, you know, I I think that would be a fascinating discussion of, uh, I think we've been out of school long enough that maybe, you know, the dynamics in the classroom have changed. But, you know, you still have this dynamic where, you have to demonstrate that you have the knowledge of what's right. going on, and in some way, that's going to make, there's a central figure margin. And if, as I understand what's going on in the critical theory way of looking at things, interactions are viewed in terms of oppressor and oppressed, or the, the central figure and the marginalized right. figures. And, you know, so that's the way this whole discussion is being framed in there. And what it occurred to me, and it kind of goes back to a show that we talked about a few weeks ago, where we're talking about the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry that we are as a people as humans we are inclined to remember the obstacles and barriers we faced instead of the benefits and blessings we've received and it seems like this critical theory way of looking at things Exacerbates that tendency to see the barriers and obstacles because you're looking and say, oh, they're being oppressive, they're being central and and elevated, and I'm being marginalized. It's making us very sensitive and inclined to live in that area where we see the obstacles and the and the and the, the barriers. And you know, as, as I was highlighted in that, statistically speaking, you can show that the more you focus on the obstacles and barriers, the more likely you are to engage in morally questionable behavior. Mm -hmm. So this way of thinking, my my contention is this way of thinking about it actually is going to undermine one of the things that science requires. And that is that when you do things, you do them objectively, you try to remove your Mm -hmm. situation from the picture to get an accurate assessment of what's going on which is largely how I've been taught. And, you know, kind of one of the challenges, it, I'm a little hesitant to even have these discussions is, I'm white, I'm successful. I've enjoyed a lot of the benefits of how things have been taught. I think the way a physicist, or, you know, I think the way, in a way that helps a scientist do well. And so, uh, you know, a lot of what I can say, well, I'm just enjoying the privilege of being white. But the reality of it is, as I went through my science career, I've had numerous places where I thought I was incapable of doing this, or the data, just, you know, the experiment all just fell apart, or everything I'd been working for just didn't happen, or I'm, I'm just tired of all the effort. And if I were to look at this from an oppressor-oppressed relationship, every time that happens, my focus would be on who's oppressing me instead of what's the problem and how do I solve it. Mm-hmm. At least that, and that's, that would be the struggle I would have because there's nothing – I have yet to meet a person who who has gone through a science career and it's just been easy sailing. In fact, when I was in my graduate degree, um, I was told when I went into my qualifying – not the qualifying exam, my preliminary exam, it's like the whole goal of this is not to test what you know – it's to get to the limits of what you know and then figure out how do you deal with what you don't know? And may- maybe I was blessed because I was told that ahead of time, or at least I learned after the fact. But you know, so here's a situation where you're intentionally being put in a situation that is gonna be challenging and hard. You're, you're going to fail in the sense that you don't know what's going on. But then what the assessment is, how well do you respond? How well do you step out and say, well, here's how I might approach that. How do you solve the problem mm-hmm which is very different. I would handle that very differently if I was looking at that from an oppressor-oppressive relationship. And so I I think just from a philosophical mindset, this is a flawed way of doing science. And if I show one more slide there, the next slide, um, it, it even comes up in terms of one of the central principles of how physics physicists operate. And I'll I'll just kind of read the paragraph. Finally, the priority within the physics or within physics is to capture the dynamics of the physical world in a small number of principles, what we will call unification here, contributes to the power that this representation holds. So physics is about saying, all right, with as few general principles as I can, how can I explain as many different Mm -hmm. circumstances as I can? They're arguing, though, that this unification is to get the smallest number of principles that can explain you know, what I just said. Organizing around unification means that many things follow from those basic, basic principles such that getting these basics wrong can feel like a scary prospect. Yes. And, you know, if, <laughs> yes, it is. But what it's going on to say is that this idea of unification is actually contributing to that oppressive – it's, it's an oppressive way of thinking about things. Um, so it's, you know, and again, they're using a lot of terms that sound reasonable, but they they seem to be meaning something very different because they're hitting the the general tone of the paragraph is we don't want to think of things in terms of unification. That amplifies this, the, the dominant people can control the situation. <clears throat> but yet, you know, just as a practical measure, I have found that, one, a great way to what, I've, what I'm what i drawn to physics about is that a very small number of things allows you to mm-hmm. explain a great number of things. But it also means I just have to remember so much less. I, I can use my problem-solving skills mm-hmm. instead of having to memorize this enormous body of knowledge. And so this is if, – if again, if I'm reading this correctly, what they're saying is – that this idea of unification is actually a way of maintaining power. We need to dismantle that or do it differently. But yet this is one of the fundamental guiding principles of how we've developed the great wealth of scientific knowledge we have. And so I've been talking a lot here, but I'm just kind of curious. What are your thoughts as you're hearing how these people are describing how to look at from a critical race theory viewpoint, the way physics education is being done.
0: Well, but I think it actually, as I'm seeing this being presented, I think it actually erodes at the very foundation of what science is all about. Right? How so? Well, you know, again, as you're saying, I mean, and this isn't just unique to physics. This is true in chemistry and mm-hmm. in biology, you know. Uh, as a graduate student, I had to master intermediary metabolism, which are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chemical reactions that are mediated by enzymes, you know, inside the cell. And there's no way to memorize that. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose you could, but you're, you you have to look for unifying principles, mm-hmm. and with a handful of principles and understanding how enzymes are named, you can literally uh, start with a, a single molecule. And, and construct all of intermediary metabolism, mm-hmm, right? right? A, a, assuming that you understand again what different pathways are doing and kind of what are the, 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 the key outputs and the key inputs, right? You know, so there's some memorization that you have to have, uh, but the whole point is that that what becomes an unwieldy problem is is actually again made tractable by again by being able to unify. Mm -hmm. in in, with a a set of principles. And then, you know,
1: well, and and even what you're saying there by getting a a unified set of principles, or once you understand those unified set of principles, you are actually empowered to do a great deal of work, right?
0: Well, and, and, and when you look at science education, whether it's in the classroom, or as a graduate student, where you're working towards a PhD, the whole goal is to take those people. There is a pecking order in science, as yeah. I was told, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, and reminded several times during graduate school and as a postdoc, you know. But the idea is that the the goal is to take people that are at the lower rungs, mm-hmm. you know, a, and or at the margins, and work to, to give them the knowledge to, so that they can move from the margins into that position of mm-hmm. being part of that elite that right. that actually have, if you will, power, but it's not, it, it's power that's based on knowledge with the understanding that you're going to use that, that power for a, to do good things, mm-hmm. you know, for society, but also that you are in turn going to, to turn around and help those people that are on the margins to, to, to enter into that same community right. uh, of, of quote unquote power, which really is, is understanding in. And the capacity then to to go out and solve problems independently, mm-hmm. right? You know, and 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 so to me, it's it's there is that that power structure that's being described here, but that's I see that as endemic in the very nature of science itself. But but in the in its best form, science in science education is about that that process of. Of, of trying to grant people that, that equivalency, if you will,
1: mm-hmm. right? Well, and, you know, it, it seems to me the power is granted in the knowledge of, effectively. So it doesn't right. mean you've got to have this socioeconomic background. It doesn't mean you've right. got to have this class, this whatever. What I've noticed, again, my, my, my experience has been, as I have demonstrated proficiency in the physics I have a place at the table in the conversation, and um, that's what I love about science is that it it draws that sort of thing. You know, I mean, my my initial thought, if I'm honest, when I read this, is like, oh, why are we even talking about this? Or you know, why is this in a physics journal? This seems yeah. like something else. But then I realized, you know, there there is a place. This is a a good thing uh, for this to be in a physics journal because it's laying out here's our explanation for what's going on now. The way physics, the way science works, is all right. Here's the expl- or here's your model. Here's your explanation. Let's test it and see. Does it actually work in the real world? Is that the way the world actually works? Does it line up with the data? You know, and, and I, a couple two points I wanted to bring out in regards to that 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 they're using the discrepancy between uh, the statistical, the population dyna- demographics of whites compared to their degree percentages. To blacks in their degree percentages. And what, you know, the whites, again, or, you know, white people, yeah. 72, 73, <coughs> 75 for those numbers, whereas black at 16 and then three and 1.8. Yeah. Again, a large discrepancy. But that means if blacks don't have their proportionate percentage, whites do are proportional to their population. That means there's another population out there that is overrepresented in a population. So in this scenario, somehow that would mean. The whiteness would be attributing or enhancing other people with power, Mm -hmm. and not you know. So it's it's there's got to be. It seems to me, just from the statistical analysis, there something else is at play. And Mm -hmm. and as I was reading through the various references in the article, I came across another paper, um, which I'm going to draw a blank on the name of it here. Uh, I'll just uh, the name of the part was you know educational pathways of Black women physicists. Stories of experiencing and overcoming obstacles to life. And one of the things they commented, or as they were going through, is like, there are things, if you go to the next slide, um, you know, in these studies, study focuses, uh, you know, again, looking at this discrepancy. There are investigations that concentrate on the reasons of failure, but there are works that focus on successful cases. Um, and then they go on to look at what are the things that cause. Uh, things to work well. In this direction, the literature indicates at the individual level, strong pre-college science experiences, family support, teacher encouragement, intrinsic motivation, and perseverance serve as critical factors for the success. They go on to say that people of color in scientific programs, But I would say that's the key to success for anyone. Yeah. Um, You know, so even... You know, in in the CRT way of looking at things, critical race theory way of looking at things, they're saying, "Oh, we need to look at the the dominance and power structure and to correct that." When in reality, there are lots of things you can do to get a strong pre-college science experience. Now, it may be the neighborhood you live in, the schools aren't good, or you have to homeschool, or find a yeah. uh, you know, or an online school, or you know, a co-op type school. Or you may, right. you know, but there are things you can do. Um, family support. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't, as the child, you can't do anything. But one of my main contentions, the reason why I'm the physicist I am today, is because my parents built into me and made sure that I had yeah. the support I needed. Teacher encouragement, intrinsic motivation, perseverance. Um, yeah. that's a, <laughs> I can't help but think every time I hear that word, Romans 3 Romans 5 God tells us to rejoice in our trials and tribulations why because uh uh trial w- working through them bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character yeah. you know that's a very biblical idea that the focus is not on ooh the trial who's oppressing me it's like persevere through the trial keep working on your trials realize that every situation there's something you can do to work at and improve through there and that mindset actually produces gratitude which you know in the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry that's the solution to having joy in life is focusing on the benefits and blessings not the, the the barriers and obstacles but it's also something that it it Independent of what other people are doing, you can do that. So instead yeah. of being subject, your your life right. in the in the oppressor-oppress model, your your life, your livelihood, your mindset is entirely determined by what other people are doing. Right. This allows you to say, here's what I can do, which right. again is what script throughout the New Testament, right. Paul is always telling us: be content, rejoice always, give thanks. Right because that's what's going to allow you to do the things to solve the problems. And my contention is, as we continue to look at this, we'll find that this critical race way of looking or critical theory way of looking at things in terms of oppressor and oppressed is going to not align with the data that says, hey, here's what actually works. And so I think it's a, I'm I'm very concerned about the philosophy that's being promulgated. And I don't want that to be advocated because I think it's going to cause damage But it also highlights, hey, we can look at this scientifically, and I think the data is pretty strong out there that uh, the the biblical, the Christian way of looking at things actually helps people grow Mm -hmm. and encourage, in spite of the fact that many scientists throughout history have, including many Christians, have done very poorly at actually living that out and making sure that it's worked well.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it seems to me in light of, of this and And I think your point's very well made is that this is the pathway for success in anybody mm-hmm. in, right. in science. We just need to make sure then that that in our culture and our society, that people have equitable access to all of those influencing factors, that that if there's a discrepancy, it means that for some reason, there's a breakdown mm-hmm. in in terms of people of color not having access to this kind of support system right and so what can we do to step in and ensure that those support systems are in place so that that people of color actually are uh, feel um confident mm-hmm. to to pursue degree undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees in the sciences
1: and i will say this that uh I I think what often gets missed and I'm all for, you know, how can you do mentorships and how can you, uh, you know, build programs to where schools are helping provide that support. Um, I don't, I, what often gets overlooked in my assessment is the family support aspect of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want to say, well, okay, people can do whatever they want. However, but the, as the family erodes, that support that allows the child to weather all the storms, work through the difficulties, get through the problems, that God has designed it that that primarily comes through the family. And so we Mm. want to, if we really want to make progress in this, the single biggest issue we could do is ask the question, how do we encourage strong families in our country, or whatever country you're in, and implement policies that build strong families? That hands down will... Be the biggest factor we can do. And as we're doing that, make sure that there's good teacher encouragement, that we have strong pre college science programs. Do the other stuff, but don't neglect. You can do a lot of the other stuff. And if the family support isn't there, you're fighting against the tide yeah. all the time. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> it, 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 controversial, you know, uh, but I think an important conversation to have, mm-hmm. right? You know, because to me, you know, science is such. Uh, uh, a, a powerful way of, of approaching uh, the problems that confront our world. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world where science and technology have growing influence and growing importance. And, and to me, it's ultimately a shame that you don't see uh, people of all ethnic and racial backgrounds, mm-hmm. you know, properly represented within science and technology disciplines to me, that's that's an absolute tragedy, mm-hmm. right? And and but I don't I don't think as you're pointing out the way to remedy that tragedy is to is to burn <laughs> is to burn science to the ground or to right. try to erode what is the very essence of the scientific method and in scientific education, but rather it's how do we make uh, the pathways to to becoming a scientist or a technologist as equitable as possible,
1: right? Well, And and the encouraging and cool part about this is that we have a lot of the research out there that allows us to see what is it that helps people succeed. Mm -hmm. Let's focus on helping people succeed and drawing people up. Um, We're going to find that that's going to have tentacles into how we operate as a society. uh, But there's lots of things we can do to help people succeed that doesn't, as you say, burn down the foundations of science. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'll turn it over to you. I know you've okay. got a, another interesting discussion.
0: Yeah. Well. Okay. We're 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 going to shift gears from uh, the sociology of science to uh, to some biochemistry here, but kind of to help us with our segue. Um, uh, I think you know who this is.
1: <laughs> I actually don't. I, oh, I don't do enough baseball, especially okay. historic baseball, to know.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this is a picture of Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra. All right. Okay. <laughs> And uh, you know, uh, I uh, grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan. So I was a uh, my earliest memory of the Reds is during the Big Red Machine days. And so Johnny Bench was part of the Big Red Machine. And at that time, there was a debate going on: who is the greatest catcher that ever played the game? Is it Johnny Bench or is it Yogi Berra? Okay. And and so Yogi Berra played for the Yankees, I think nineteen forty six to nineteen sixty three. Okay. Uh, So about 19 years, he uh, was a World War II veteran, actually, as well. Wow. Um, But uh, during those 19 years, he won 10 World Series rings with the Yankees. 18 years, he was an an all-star and won the AL MVP three years of of those 19 years. And then after that, uh, went into coaching and managing and had kind of a up and down, lackluster career as a, a coach and a manager, but uh, probably one of the the best catchers that ever played the game. Well, but,
1: without getting too controversial, what's your vote, Yogi Berra or uh, Johnny Bench? Johnny Bench,
0: probably Johnny Bench, <laughs> but uh, but that may be just biased from from my my fandom. But but Yogi Berra is also as equally well known for some of the quips that he. He said, "These are called yogiisms," and so I went to ESPN, and this is their top ten yogiisms.
1: <laughs> these are awesome.
0: <laughs> like it's uh, like deja vu all over. And again, you know, people that may not be familiar with Yogi Bear probably have heard many of these, right? You know, uh, you better cut the pizza into four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. Uh, the future ain't what it used to be. Uh, we made too many wrong mistakes. Uh, Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> uh, you can observe a lot by watching. You should always go to other people's funerals; otherwise, they won't come to yours. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, baseball is ninety percent mental; 50, the other half is physical, and it ain't over till it's over. So, right. so you know. Anyway, but the the yogiism that I I want to focus on here. Uh, is the one that says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And the story behind this is that Yogi Berra had a really good friend named Joe Garagiola, who actually, both Yogi Berra is from the city of St. Louis, and right across the street from him lived a guy named Joe Garagiola, and they're considered the pride of St. Louis. All right. He wound up playing for the Yankees for seven years. That's so remarkable to think. <laughs> two guys that lived across the street played, played for the Yankees. But then after uh, Joe Garagiola's uh, career in baseball as a player, he became a broadcaster. And so growing up, I used to listen to the, uh, the baseball game of the week on Saturday or watch it, and Joe Garagiola was the, the broadcaster, was the play by play person. But anyway, but because they're friends and from the same neighborhood, uh, Yogi Berra was giving Joe Garagiola directions to his house in Montclair, okay. n- New Jersey and so he lived on a circle and you, <laughs> you, and so that you come to a fork in the road and either direction you go you're going to wind up at yogi bear's house okay so the, the, the so he said well when you come to a fork in the road take it okay right and and so that actually describes the the implications of uh, the paper that i want to talk about <laughs> which is a paper published uh, in a journal called molecular biology and evolution uh, by a team of uh, international team of researchers, actually headed up uh, by a physicist by the name of Ard Louis, who is at the University of Oxford, and Ard Louis is a part of a group of scientists who are interested in evolutionary theory, who actually adopts a view called structuralism, and okay. so, uh, and so this particular paper was looking at the nature of the evolutionary process and making a case that structuralism is the better way to think about evolution. And so uh, most people, when they think about the, the nature of, of biological evolution, see it as this unguided, undirected process uh, where you have random variation that can take place within genetic material. Mm-hmm. And that random variation is what you might call isotropic. It's the chance of, of any kind of very random change is roughly equivalent. Okay. And then it's operated on by the forces of natural selection uh, where the those particular genetic features that promote reproductive success are going to persist in the subsequent generations whereas those that don't are gonna be eliminated. So you could think of natural selection as like a filter okay. that filters out certain genetic changes and retains other ones that again lead to reproductive fitness. but the process of evolution is is ultimately predicated on chance. Okay, the, the genetic changes are chance events. the The nature of natural selection, which would be competitive pressure, predatory pressures, environmental pressures, are going to be somewhat random. Okay, and so you're, you're going to wind up with things that are reproduct- ensure reproductive success in one generation that multiple generations later may not actually be. Uh, uh features that are are beneficial and it's and it's all driven by hmm. chance events in a sense. so the process of evolution is viewed as historically contingent, uh, meaning it's a sequence of chance events and as the late Stephen Jay Gould described it, if you could rewind the tape of life and replay it, the outcome would be different every time because of the historically contingent nature. But what it also means is that there's not any kind of fundamental reason why biological designs look the way they look. It's just this is what evolution happened upon. uh, And that future evolutionary events are constrained by this history, this this historically contingent history. So that's how most people conceive of of evolution. But what um, Ard Louis and his collaborators are pointing out is that this is assuming essentially an isotopic very uh, isotopic nature to the variation right but what if he mm-hmm. s- argues there's an inherent bias what do, what impact does that actually have on the nature of, of evolutionary uh, of the evolutionary process and is is it is the is the uh, variation isotropic or is it biased okay. those are the questions they were addressing and so they decide in this paper to focus on molecular evolution and particularly on uh, the the quote-unquote evolution of RNA secondary structure. And there's a couple of reasons why they wanted to do this. One is uh, that the leading model for the origin of life through chemical evolution is the RNA world hypothesis, where people believe that the very first biochemistry was built around RNA molecules, and that later on these RNA molecules then Uh, Evolved to give rise to the DNA protein world that we live in today. And the argument is that one of the evidences for this is that RNA is still present uh, within uh, biological systems, within biochemical systems, but it serves kind of an intermediary role Mm -hmm. uh, decoding the information in DNA so that uh, the information that is uh, expressed in proteins can be Again, functionally expressed can be that proteins can be produced.
1: So, it, so, in that language, the, or, you know, the RNA would have been kind of the contingent process to get there, but it's right. not really fundamental. It, it, it's got a right. it's got a role simply because it was just around, and that's where right. we got to. Right.
0: Yeah. The DNA protein world is just a, a contingent outcoming of okay. of what evolution wrought, and even the RNA world itself mm. is is again kind of uh, is a contingent happenstance. Okay. Now, when it comes to RNA, uh, we RNA there's a menagerie of RNA molecules inside the cell. In fact, this is called sometimes now today the dark matter of the genome because there's so much going on with RNA molecules, and we continue okay. to discover more and more different types of RNA molecules that are playing, you know, critical roles in primarily in, in gene regulation.
1: So, so the RNA, I mean, there's the DNA which has you know the the gene, co- the the protein coding or amino acid coding yeah. regions, genes, right. and then there's the uh, you know the junk DNA, which because right. right. I've heard of some of these terms in terms of the junk DNA, but this is what we're talking about with the RNA is stuff that interacts with that. Right. These are all separate molecules. correct? Yes. Yes. Okay.
0: So so you know what you have is within DNA, there's there are um, there's information that. Uh, that are called, that encodes, sorry, the production of proteins. These would be genes. But then there's also non-genic regions. Mm -hmm. And and, and some of that non-genic DNA is actually expressed or transcribed. It's copied in the form of RNA molecules. So that's what's shown on the left. And then there are two different types of RNA uh, molecules that categorically one would be those that actually are involved in the production of proteins. Okay. And so the messenger RNA contains the instructions to make the proteins, but for, that, the, for that, those instructions to be read, that RNA has to migrate to a, a structure called a ribosome, which mm-hmm. is made up of RNA and proteins, where the ribosomal RNA is reading the messenger RNA and then is also catalyzing the production of the proteins themselves. Uh, the joining of the amino acids to make the proteins. And then there are these transfer RNA molecules that are ferrying the right amino acid to the the ribosome at the right time to build the appropriate uh, protein. But then you also have RNA molecules that are transcribed that are playing a role in regulating gene expression. So there are these long non-coding RNAs and then small non-coding RNAs. And within the long non-coding RNAs, there's a whole different... There's a whole bunch of different RNA classes. And then there's these small RNA molecules that are doing all kinds of things interacting with RNAs and proteins to, to regulate gene expression.
1: So on your diagram here, the upper left, you got the RNA, then you've got the messenger RNA, you got the non-coding RNA, and everything else is a non-coding RNA. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yep. And yep. what... <laughs> What strikes me as odd is how diverse the non-coding RNA is compared to the messenger RNA. Yeah,
0: it's very well. You have a, a menagerie of RNA molecules, okay. and and that menagerie just gets bigger and bigger as time goes on.
1: But why is the menagerie all in the non-coding part and not the messenger RNA?
0: Uh, because the messenger RNA actually has a very specific function, which okay. is to to harbor the information needed. To, to make proteins itself. Okay. But, um, but you know, and, and the transfer RNA is going to be limited in terms of the number of molecules because that is a very precise role mm-hmm. in terms of bringing, you know, amino acids to the, to the ribosome. Right. But one of the things that's interesting here is that for most of the function of RNA, it's not just simply dependent upon the primary sequence or the, the primary structure, which we have the sequence of nucleotides, okay. but it also depends on the secondary and tertiary structures, and so there's there are higher order structures to RNA that are critical to the different types of functions.
1: So is this where I mean you've got this, the 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 sequence there, which is the primary structure, but then how it all folds up and right. is what you're talking about? Okay, right.
0: And so this is exemplified with transfer RNA. So this is a on the left is a secondary structure. It's called the cloverleaf pattern. So it shows the primary sequence and then how the chain actually folds back on itself to interact. And then you can convert that two-dimensional structure into a three-dimensional shape, which is roughly an L-shaped molecule where one region is called the anticodon that interacts with the the messenger RNA. The other region is the acceptor stem where the amino acid is bound. So it's kind of bringing in into the, you know, this into the ribosome, this you know, L-shaped structure that's right. positioning the amino acids in the right location. So again, the, the secondary and tertiary structures are very important. And then there's also RNA molecules that function as enzymes where they actually catalyze chemical reactions just like protein enzymes do. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the basis for the RNA world that RNA could actually function as, and this is a a secondary structure for a very well-known ribozyme called the hammerhead ribozyme, and this is what the the tertiary structure looks like, so if you can imagine how these different two-dimensional, on the left, this is the two-dimensional structure of the hammerhead ribozyme, and looking at how, in three-dimensional space, those different regions interact to form... This, right. this three-dimensional structure. So the, the point of this paper was asking the question, when you look at RNA secondary structures, uh, and they, they didn't focus on tertiary structures because the mathematics that they needed to assess <laughs> the, 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 the types of, of tertiary structures that would be possible was just beyond reach. Right. So they focused on secondary structures. But the question was, when we look at RNA secondary structures, how do we explain the the evolution of these secondary structures? Is this due to, again, an isotopic variation, or is it due to a biased variation in what types of secondary structures would be possible? So in other words, you've got RNA sequences Mm -hmm. that can essentially fold into these secondary structures that are really the precursors to the tertiary structures, are the are the set of secondary structures just something that randomly arose,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or is there something that is predetermining or pre-sculpting those secondary structures that we see?
1: So, so when you're talking about uh, variations in the 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 primary structure, that makes sense. You know, you change right. an A to something. You know, that is just changing right. one of the four letters or something else. My understanding has always been that now you've got all these chemicals, there's, given the interactions, they're going to fold in a specific way. Are you hmm. saying there are multiple ways it's possible to fold in?
0: Well, that's the question. That's the question. Okay. Really, what, is, what, what does it look like? Is okay. it, what, are the, what are the range of options? All right. Because, and what they did in the study is they looked at um, RNA molecules of different lengths, and... They, they then went into nature and said, okay, what are the secondary structures that we have identified and, mm-hmm. and have cataloged and discovered somewhere between about 10 to the 3 and 10 to the 6. This is what they are estimating represents the, the number of different secondary structures. But for a, a RNA molecule that's about 125 nucleotides in length, you would have potentially, I think, something like uh, close to... Uh, 10 to the 75, 10 to the 76 possible uh, secondary structures. So,
1: okay, so having a thousand to a million is much shorter than right. the number of protons right. in the universe so, type numbers. So, there's
0: a very small fraction of potential RNA space okay. that's actually occupied in nature. Right. So, again, the question is is that contingency? Or is that there's something dictating those particular structures? All right. So they then went out and they generated a database of random RNA sequences and then calculated what the secondary structures would be. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the secondary structures they get are identical in terms of number and type to what you see in nature.
1: So the database is actually synth- synthesized molecules to see what they would do, or these are just chemical. Uh, this is chemical just, simulations. Th- yeah, if you will. this is
0: okay. yeah. This is all done in the computer. Okay, all right. Right, and there's a mathematical algorithm right. they develop to predict secondary structure from primary structures. Okay. Right, and so and when they d- apply that, you know, when they apply that to the RNA molecules in nature, they get the secondary structures that you observe. Mm-hmm. And so then when they create a random database. Of, of RNA sequences, you wind up getting the same secondary structures. And so... So
1: this is presumably going to the structuralism, that there's some sort of structure that forces everything into exactly. what we see. Okay. Exactly.
0: And so this is the way in which they conceive, um, you know, of what the, the RNA space looks like. So you've got all possible RNA shapes, which would be, again, for an RNA molecule of approximately um, 125 nucleotides about 10 to the 75, 10 to the 76 possibilities. They they then say, well, of that there's a subset that we would call functional RNA shapes. Okay. These would have shapes that would actually uh, produce biochemical function. Now I'm not quite sure how they arrived at, the, at that and, and, what, and th- that just may be a conceptual circle that they're okay. drawing there. But then they noted is that there's a small subset of those functional shapes that actually is found in nature and it's also the ones that actually represent what you see mm-hmm. you know in these random sequences. And so on this basis, they argue that there are these physical chemical constraints that only allow certain secondary structures to exist. Okay. Uh and, and the eerie thing is that those secondary structures that that are possible are the ones that precisely will create function within biochemistry. So there's a bit of a kind of a, 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 a fortunate coincidence that that the mm. con- physical constraints are actually producing the, the secondary structures that would be functional. Because you could imagine the physical constraints or the physical chemical constraints actually producing structures that would not be functional. Right. So... Um,
1: so, so is this? I mean, it strikes me that this diagram is not to scale because no, that no. gray circle would be no. enormous. The green is very small. Yeah. This is—is is this akin to you know? You could look at the periodic table and say, all right, there's, you know, you know, hundred elements right. there. There's just a vast, you know, take three mol- three different atoms. There's just a vast array of what's can possibly what you could possibly make. But then you go look in nature, and it's actually a much smaller set of three because there are physical properties that say sodium and chlorine will bind, but sodium and gold won't. Or, yeah, right. So that, this is kind of what's going on here. Yes.
0: Yeah, that there, there's basically, yeah, that there are these, these physical forces and chemical forces that are saying certain structures are permitted, other mm-hmm. structures are not permitted.
1: And it just so happens the structures that are permitted – Right. Are what life has used, right. or what life requires, depending on how you're looking right. at it. Okay. Right,
0: and so this is what they they say in the um, in the abstract. Uh, we demonstrate quantitatively that developmental bias is the primary explanation for the occupation of the morphospace of RNA secondary structures. In other words there's a there, there there's it's not an it's not anything is possible okay with, with regard to secondary structure only certain okay. there, only certain structures are permitted right and the ultimate cause of these patterns is not natural selection but rather a strong phenotype bias or in, in other words in other words it's the the shape uh, in the RNA genotype phenotype map so in other words you you can have different primary structures different RNA sequences, and those radically different sequences are going to lead you to the same secondary structures. Mm, Okay. So it's not sequence-dependent, in other words, or not exclusively sequence-dependent, right? That's a really cool concept. So multiple sequences (coughs) will give you the same secondary structures is what they're saying.
1: Um, That that strikes me as a, uh, you know, when you're saying, hey, I want this outcome to happen of Setting up multiple pathways that it kind of is like okay I've got a wide range of inputs but I'm just going to make sure they all end up here. Yes, it sounds like that's exactly. what this is a description. Exactly, of. Okay. exactly.
0: And, and so uh, let's see. So they say a type of developmental bias or findability constraint, which limits evolutionary dynamics to a hugely reduced subset of structures that are easy to find. So in in other words, what they're they're arguing here is that again that you know even though there is this vast mm-hmm. space of possible secondary structures that uh, in principle exist that that really a very very small space is occupied and the reason is because there are, again these physical chemical constraints that limit the types of folds that are possible and again it's it's eerie that that you wind up with exactly those same kind of folds and 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 this now explains a very interesting result um that was published, gosh, a number of years ago. That's not a very good picture. <laughs> 2001 by Jack Shawstack and his group at MIT. Mm-hmm. And, and Or no, check that, Harvard. And uh, um, and Shostak, uh, Nobel laureate, is uh, interested in the original life question and did what's called an in vitro evolution experiment where you um, you have random RNA sequen- RNA molecules. You have RNA molecules, sorry, with random mm-hmm. nucleotide sequences and you look to try to evolve functional enzymes or right. ribozymes. And in that experimental protocol, they keep winding up at producing basically the hammerhead ribozyme okay. over and over and over <laughs> again uh, where the, the RNA sequences are different, but the structure, the secondary structure is the same. So okay. it's like the, it converges this in vitro evolutionary process converges mm-hmm. on the on the same outcome over and over again, and in this paper they speculated that there are probably, again, these physical chemical constraints that force this this outcome, hmm. and so what uh, Ard Louis and his collaborators are demonstrating now is the explanation for why that why they got this result, right? And so, you know. So there's a number of implications for this result. Number one is that it radically it, 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 it radically, in other words, it's not uh, uh, an evolutionary process that's determining the, 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 the secondary structures we see in RNA. Mm-hmm. It's actually the laws of physics and, and the chemical outworkings of the laws of physics that are determining RNA secondary structures.
1: That to me seems a very profound point because, um you know, I sp- spent a lot of time talking about, well, if you want to end up with something like water, you think, okay, water, that's hydrogen two oxygens, that that's a chemical process, if you will, but that's intimately tied to the way the laws of physics are put together. And if you want to end up with carbon behaving the way it does, that's intimately tied to the way right. the laws of physics are put together. And given how stars work or how, the universe works, if you want carbon and oxygen, the laws of physics are just structured to produce, that there are these things that are coming into play, and you're adding this component of not only does getting the fundamental components, but the things that can make life and the process of getting there is ultimately... Contingent on the way the laws of physics are put right. together, so these laws of physics are carrying a pretty heavy load at this point in time, which yeah, yeah. is really pretty cool. So. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. Well,
0: and, but what it's saying is that there appears to be a, a deep-seated teleology to the universe, right? Right. That that something when you start using terms like the RNA secondary structures are pre-sculpted, right? Right. That <laughs> that, that that this these shapes are already are predetermined and they're predetermined by the laws of physics, right? Mm-hmm. Which you know, happen to be fine-tuned, right, and are yes. a just right sets of laws of physics. And when you go to chemistry, like with water, well, water, again, emerges out of the the, the laws of physics, the structure of water, but in and of itself, it has this very interesting suite of chemical and physical right. properties that make it ideally suited for its role as a solvent system for life. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's probably not alternatives that could really work in its place. And so then when we go to the biochemical level, you know, this this study that we see with the Ard-Louis group uh, is just an example of the, the types of what you might call just right, right. Uh, properties of, of biomolecules. And in fact, in the book uh, that I wrote, Fit for a Purpose, I survey a number of biochemical systems showing that you see these just right coincidences, mm-hmm. you know, where biochemical systems have these just right set of properties uh, that seem to be dictated by the laws of nature, not through the outworkings of of evolutionary processes, and and so that suggests a type of anthropic principle, right. you know, in in biochemistry. And I think what Ard Louis' group is pointing out is that with this study is that there is a type of anthropic principle at play in biochemistry, where his study exemplifies, you know, the, mm-hmm. the evidence for that.
1: Well, it, it se- his what, what's going on there seems to argue against the contingent. Well, this is the way the universe is. Life just kind of adapted to what was there. Right. To without the universe being the way it is, life wouldn't have been. Life isn't possible in the first place. It seems to change that scenario because the the structures that you need line up with the way the laws of physics are. And that's just adding to this chain of things that if the laws of physics were a little different, yeah. it's not like, well, okay, there's lots of things out there. It just shows water. Water is so fit yeah. for being able to host life that there isn't another thing. And water is intimately tied to the structure of the laws of physics. Yeah, Carbon is so fit to the way, you know, it's like, yeah. it, it's there are these broad excursions that require right. physics to be just a certain way. And it seems like that's playing right. out in it, the structures that are available. Right.
0: And when you look at RNA... Mm-hmm. I mean RNA itself when you look at all the different aspects of its structure the every aspect of its structure is just right
1: gotcha so
0: we don't have the time <laughs> to go into it here you know but but then it also is indicating that the secondary structures that arise are just right right that that they happen to be again pre-sculpted but they also happen to be functional too right and that that's where you get this eerie and so you know, What's a what
1: Hughes' claim is that no matter what scale you look at, you know here we you know he's talking about you know from galaxies down to the, right. to the uh, to the atoms if you will, but it's right. not just the atoms; it's the sequence of the atoms, it's right. the sequence of the genetic code, it's the the primary structure, of the secondary, right. and I, I see no reason why the tertiary structure right. isn't going to have the same sort of right design or fine tuning if you right. will.
0: Right. So, so in 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 the in the book Fit for a Purpose, what I basically do is argue that. You know, and this is true here for that uh, for the study done by Ard Louis that you know the molecular systems that define life uh, are specified by the laws of physics and chemistry, and the properties of those systems are precisely those that are needed mm-hmm. for life. Now, Ard Louis doesn't show that there are alternative that, that there are no alternatives, but in, in fit for a purpose with regard to RNA, I show you just don't have other options right. available to you. Now, so you could argue that this is again, evidence for design in the universe that biochemical Mm -hmm. systems are designed. Uh, But now you've got two options in terms of how God would have uh, executed that design. One would be, um, you know, God is intervening in a direct way to -hmm. to create life and and create these biochemical systems, which would be the the view that I tend towards. Right. Uh, But the the view that our Louis tends towards is really inspired by the work of Simon Conway Morris who's a evolutionary biologist and in his book The Life of Life Solution he argues for a view called structuralism where he basically argues that biological systems are fundamentally specified by the laws of nature not by natural selection not okay. by a historically contingent evolutionary process and, and that these designs that we see in biology are predetermined mm-hmm. Uh, by the laws of nature. They're pre-sculpted. And so, it do, you know, to to use the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Yogi Berra quote, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, what road you take, you're going to wind up there. Right. If you come to a fork in the road, take it, because no matter what path you take, you're going to the, the kind of wind up with the same kind of RNA structures, you're going to wind up with the same kind of you know body mm-hmm. plans for organisms, and so in his book he says it's now widely thought that the history of life is little more than a contingent muddle punctuated by disastrous mass extinctions that go in spelling doom for one group. So open the doors of accidents of uh, so open the doors of uh, accidents of history. Yet we know of. Uh, what, so yeah, what we know of evolution suggests the exact reverse. Convergence is ubiquitous, and the constraints of life make the emergence of various biological properties very probable, if not inevitable. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, you know, it's, uh, again, the, the, what appear to be the laws of na- laws of nature that are con- determining the outcome of evolution, not historically contingent processes shaped by, by natural selection. Uh, And, um, and, and so his evidence is the fact that you, when you look at biology, it looks as if biological systems have independent origins time and time again. Mm -hmm. And we've argued that, well, that's, that challenges evolution. That's evidence for design. Simon Conway Morris is agreeing with that, but instead of seeing God intervening in a direct personal way, uh, he's seeing God intervening by creating an apparatus so that the outcome is predetermined ahead of time, and that no matter how evolution transpires, it's going to go to that intended outcome. Mm -hmm. And so, in other words, there's a a teleology there, uh, no matter how you slice it. And what Ard Louis is doing in his work is essentially presenting a molecular version of of Conway Morris's structuralism. So he's arguing that that structuralism isn't just at the biological level, it's at the biochemical level as well, right? Gotcha. And, and so, uh, you know, and, and so in other words, whether you, when you start seeing the fact that there's convergence, which suggests physical chemical constraints on what is possible, that's essentially what Ard-Louis is arguing. Uh, you really are now in a teleological regime. Gotcha. You no longer are saying this is, Materialism, where the outcome is happenstance; mm-hmm. it's not nothing is predetermined. It's all unguided. To this has been predetermined. This has been rigged from the get go. And whether it's, it now becomes a question of what is the mode of divine action—is it through process or is it through intervention? But in other words, it doesn't matter what road you take; you're going to wind up in the same place. That there's a teleology. Mm-hmm. To the universe that suggests the the work of a creator
1: you know the the i think this is just fascinating work i've loved the discussion and and just the insights that you've brought but one of the things that i see a parallel between this and physics if you will is that uh you know it's kind of for a long time the idea okay laws of physics are what they were You, you know there there's you only get one shot at it well we've got this idea now you know this recognition That uh, the laws of physics are unified, you know, going back to our previous discussion, that's given great insight into how the universe works. And we think that gravity and electromagnetic and strong and weak nuclear forces, ultimately, when the when the energy is high enough, they're all the same thing. And as the universe cools, they the symmetry is broken, and we end up with what we see. The idea behind that is that symmetry could break in all sorts of different directions. It's a a contingent process Mm -hmm. and with the advent of the multiverse presumably all of these different contingencies exist out there we live in the place where it's conducive to life i'm wondering in in light of the discussion here that for a long time we thought okay well the chemistry and the biology it's it's just all contingent you know i just kind of throw it together eventually you get there and what you're seeing is that if this structuralism is correct no, it's not, well, you might get there. It's like, no, it's, it's designed to get there. Almost wonder if we're going to see that same sort of thing in how the symmetries are broken, that we think, oh, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is there are processes that we have yet to discover or understand that kind of direct thing towards or at least ensure that life-giving universes arise or yeah. life possible universes because i still yeah. think even once you get the laws of physics there's still other things god needs to do in order for us to be here but i'm just kind of yeah. curious where that's going to play out and you know i don't yeah. i don't know where we've got the capacity to test that in astronomy for a long time but right. it is just fascinating how how many times without? Oh, this gets away from the need for design, and only as we study further, we's right. like, oh, there's a there's a depth to the design that we didn't even realize. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, in 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 you know, it's very tempting to look at the study that Ard Louis did and say, wow, this is, seems to be promoting an evolutionary mm-hmm. explanation, and it and it is, but it's a very different type of evolution, right? Than 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 you know what is typically conceived of in the mainstream. And the fact that it's so teleological and and that insight, again, can be can be really cashed out in two different ways. And so what I like about this idea of structuralism and and kind of anthropic coincidences mm-hmm. that kind of arise out of it is that it really is a bridge position between old earth creationism and intelligent design and a, a type of theistic evolution, right, that right, it, okay. it, it, it kind of creates a a space where those two positions be, can begin to coexist in a in a comfortable way, mm-hmm. in a peaceable way, where now you're just looking at really mode of divine action, it, but yet it's very clear that there is design in the universe, right. that it's 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 teleology, whereas I think there's some expressions of theistic evolution that don't lend you. The, the, don't lend themselves towards being compatible with design.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah. So. No, that's a fair point. A fascinating discussion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we need to bring this thing to a close, as, as much fun as this has been. Uh, so anyway, thank you so much for watching. Uh, I would, again, encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe. Hit the notification button so that... You are reminded when the next episode of Star Cells and God Drops. And also visit our website, reasons.org, and follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, remember that the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. Until next time.